chapter 45. It says, when you divide the land among the tribes of Israel, you must set aside a section for the Lord as his holy portion. This piece of land will be eight and a third miles long and six and two third miles wide. The entire area will be holy. A section of this land measuring 875 feet by 875 feet will be set aside for the temple. An additional strip of land, 87 and a half feet wide, is to be left empty all around it. Within the larger sacred area, measure out a portion of land eight and one-third miles long and, and three and one-third miles wide. And within it, the sanctuary of the most holy place will be located. This area will be holy, set aside for the priests who minister to the Lord in the sanctuary. They will use it for their homes, and my temple will be located within it. For the strip of sacred land next to it, also eight and one-third miles long and, and three and one-third miles wide will be a living area for the Levites who work at the temple. It will be their possession and a place for their towns. Adjacent to the larger sacred area will be a section of land eight and one-third miles long and one and two-thirds miles wide. And this will be set aside for a city where anyone in Israel can live. And so, Father, as we approach this uh, majestic part of the Scriptures, Lord, as we approach this part of the Scriptures that maybe some of us have never even read before, it's easy to come to a section like this, and whether we're reading through the Bible in a year or, or something, just put our check down and not even think about these things. Or maybe you never even come to this part because it's too many numbers or it's confusing or whatever it is that we make the excuse for. Lord, please forgive us. Lord, we love your word and we want to know more about you and, and the privilege of, of setting aside this portion of land for you. And just in our lives as well, Lord, help us to set ourselves aside as, as holy to you. Even our possessions, the things that we have, the homes that we have, the, maybe even the, the property or, or the things that we own, that we would dedicate those things to you. That everything we do, everything we say would be glorifying to you. And so Lord, tonight as we approach this uh, truly holy part of the scriptures, that we would um, understand it a little bit better tonight and apply it to our own lives just as it was written during the time of Ezekiel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. We've been going through the book of Ezekiel, and you guys remember that Ezekiel was the priest without a uh, temple. He, he's literally 900 miles away from the place where he grew up in Israel. At the age of 30, he was taken to Babylon along with many of the captives during what was called the, the second exile. Uh, you guys remember that there was three different exiles uh, during the time when Babylon actually came and besieged the land of Israel, uh, the capital city being Jerusalem. The first was when they took away all the best of the best, uh, the handsome people and the smart people and the wise people, the people that actually could learn uh, the language of Babylon, their culture, their customs. Th those were people like, Daniel, whom we're going to be getting to next in the next book. Uh, people like Hananiah, Azariah, Misael, or whom we call Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? These were the ones that were taken away first in the first captivity. The cream of the crop, if you will. Then we have the second exile. This is Ezekiel and those that are living by the river Kibar uh, there in the land of Babylon. These were the ones with a trade skill. These were the blue-collar workers. 
uh, the, these were the ones that actually had a, a skill that could be applied to uh, the Babylonian uh, nation. Ezekiel being part of this group, this second exile, he was a priest. And normally at the age of 30, a priest was supposed to enter into service of uh, the temple. But what has now happened to Ezekiel? He's taken away from his homeland. Instead, at the age of 30, instead of being able to go into the temple, he is now having to prophesy to a bunch of obstinate, hard-hearted, stiff-necked people. And they resist him every single step of the way. You guys remember some of the things that he had to do, right? What did he have to eat? Bread roasted over dung. Uh, that, that's the G word, by the way, you know. Uh, or, or, you know, where he literally had to lay on his left side and then his right side, he had to make a, a, a literal model of the city of Jerusalem and prophesy what was happening in uh, Jerusalem. He, he had the um, responsibility of seeing what was going on in the temple 900 miles away where he watched those priests, many of him of whom he knew, worshiping uh, the hosts of heaven, the sun and the moon and all these idols that had been put into the holy place of the temple. He had to watch the temple being destroyed in his vision. He had to watch the Spirit of God literally leave the temple. Go out through that eastern gate and go up to heaven. He had to watch the walls being torn down in his visions. And he had to tell the people in Babylon. And of course, they didn't have phones back then. They didn't have instant news all they heard was from Ezekiel, mirroring literally uh, the book of Jeremiah and the book of Daniel as well. And so Ezekiel now at the end of this amazing book gets to see the new Jerusalem. He gets to see the new temple. He gets to see this majestic millennial kingdom uh, temple. And just to remind you, we've been um, seeing some pictures here. And my monitor is not working, so you're going to get to see it on, on those. Uh, but just the uh, comparison of this amazing uh, temple... This temple that's literally going to be larger than King Solomon's temple. More majestic than the temple that King Solomon had built. He sees every single dimension, even down to the hand spans and the hand breadths and even the cubits and the rods. And you remember the measurements that are being used. These were cubits and of course in the translation that we're using we we uh, have it automatically translated into our dimensions for us uh, so rather than seeing cubits or rods or certain large measurements that it, it's kind of hard for us to convert in our own heads uh, we get to see it in our own uh, measurements their feet and miles and inches we're in a section now is what's called the millennial uh, kingdom. This section from chapter 40 all the way up to chapter 48, which describes in more detail uh, what is happening in uh, this 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ than any other section in the entire Bible. Even more than in the book of, of Revelation. Uh, there's a, a chart here that I want you guys to see. Just kind of so you can get a um, uh, where we're at in terms of time. Uh, and you guys remember we've been talking about this. There's the rapture. This is where those that believe in Jesus Christ are, are transported up to meet him in uh, the air. We read about that in 1 Thessalonians. Then you have the tribulation time period, which we know exactly how long that will last. That is seven uh, years. Uh, this is the time period where literally everything falls apart. The Antichrist comes onto the scene for seven years. There is an immense uh, tribulation here on the earth. You read about that in the book of Revelation all the way from chapter 4 all the way up to chapter uh, 19. And then you have the battle of Gog and Magog that we just read a couple of weeks ago. 
here described in greater detail than even in uh, the book of Revelation, chapters 38 and 39. And then you have the second coming. This is when Jesus Christ literally sets foot here on the earth and is proclaimed as a king. And then this ushers in what is called the millennial kingdom, this thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ here on uh, the earth. Now, of course, many people uh, try to explain these things away. You've probably heard different views of millennialism. Maybe it's pre-millennialism or Ah, millennialism or, or some sort of other millennial where it's just a, um, you know, a vision or, or it's just ethereal or it's just something that has already happened or, or maybe we're even living in the millennial kingdom right now. The Bible describes it as something that is very, very real. Ezekiel describes it as something with measurements even down to the inches. And as we go through this amazing section, hopefully you see that these measurements were not just some dream that he dreamed up. No, these are exact measurements that when the millennial kingdom uh, comes and is built and the temple that is built, it will be exactly the same as the measurements in the book of Ezekiel. Will prophecy come true? Yes, it will. Revelation chapter 20, again, there's only one verse about the millennial kingdom, and it's in Revelation chapter 20. In verse 1 there, and you'll see it up on the screens there. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. Thank God for that. Do you know what's happening during this eight chapter section in the book of Ezekiel? Why the Jews are allowed not only to prosper, but as we see, even the Dead Sea will come to life. Do you know why that's allowed to happen? Where is Satan during this time? Where is Satan during this time? He's bound in the bottomless pit for a thousand uh, years. Now, of course, he will be let out. In fact, in verse 3, it says, The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which was then shut and locked, so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he must be released for a little while. This is what we call the, the battle of Armageddon, which will happen after this. But I want to read to you verse 4. This is important. Because many people ask, where are we? Where are we during the millennial kingdom? If we're, if we're raptured, where are we? It says in verse 4, then I saw thrones. And the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. For their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue nor accepted his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They all came to life again and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Do you know where all those martyrs during the seven year tribulation, where they will be? They will be reigning next to Jesus Christ. They will be judging uh, uh, the nations. But verse 7, or excuse me, verse 5, this is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come to back life until the thousand years had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Can you imagine that? I don't know if you've ever been to Jerusalem, but do you know if you know Jesus Christ now that you get to go to Jerusalem? That, that you will get to see a, a better Jerusalem than even now. 
You will get to see this magnificent uh, Jerusalem that we're seeing here in the book of Ezekiel. I just wanted to show you a size comparison, too, of the temple before we go back to the text. This kind of puts it into perspective uh, for us. This is the, on the left-hand side there, you can see the actual Ezekiel's temple, how big it is. The top right-hand corner, that's uh, uh, Herod's temple. And then the one kind of in the middle on the right there, that's King Solomon's temple. Literally, you can fit nine King Solomon's temples inside of uh, the Millennial Kingdom uh, temple. And then, of course, something that we can kind of relate to an American football field. And, of course, it always seems to be compared uh, to that. So you can <laughs> just kind of um, uh, see the comparison uh, there. It says, going back to Ezekiel chapter 45, verse 7. Uh, two special sections of land will be set apart for the prince. One section will share a border with the east side of the east sacred lands and city. And the second section shall share a border on the west side. And the far eastern and western borders of the prince's land will line up with the eastern and western boundaries of the tribal areas. And these sections of land will be the prince's allotment. And then my princes will no longer oppress and rob my people. They will assign the rest of the land to the people, giving an allotment uh, to each uh, tribe. In the first section of this chapter, we saw this special section of land that is set aside only for the Messiah, only for the King, uh, Jesus Christ, reigning here on uh, the earth. But there's also going to be uh, human rulers as well. You guys remember that after the captivity time period, after the very last king there during the time of Jeremiah, there is no more earthly kings descended from uh, King David. Th there's no more earthly kings after this. There's governors, governors like uh, Joshua, governors like uh, Zerubbabel, who are going to be later on in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. There's going to be puppet kings like King Herod during the time of Jesus. But there will be no more kings sitting on the throne in Jerusalem until the Messiah comes during this thousand year reign. And so the earthly rulers will be called princes. This prince is not Jesus Christ. This prince is not a king this prince is descended from the line of David, uh, but he will not uh, rule in uh, Jerusalem. We see it there in Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 22 through 24. Who is this prince? So I will rescue my flock and they will no longer be abused. I will judge between one animal of the flock and another. And I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. He will feed them and be a shepherd to them. And I, the Lord, will be thy, their God. And my servant David will be a prince among my people. I, the Lord, have spoken. Who's going to be sitting on the throne? God. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, sitting on uh, the throne. Who's going to be the, the shepherd or the uh, one who is the earthly prince during this time? A descendant from uh, the line of uh, David. Now I have just one more picture for you, just kind of so you can, can see uh, you know, geology or ge geography. All, all the things that are happening in this section here. They're, they're in the middle of the map that, that's going to pop up here. There, there's a, a circle, right? This is what is being set aside for God. This is the section of land around the temple, around the capital city of Jerusalem, that's going to be set aside for uh, God. You know that this is bigger than Jerusalem today? That this is bigger in terms of dimensions than Jerusalem today. And by the way, there's going to be no other nations around it. 
There, there's not going to be a, a Palestinian, you know, authority or a Palestinian nation. There, there's not going to be any sort of other nations in this area. What is this area going to be set aside for? God. It's going to be sacred to uh, God. And then, of course, we'll see the rest of the uh, land divided up later on in chapter uh, 47 and 48. And we'll get to that section when we get there. So these priests that are going to be ministering to uh, God that are set aside as the ministers to uh, Jesus uh, during this time are all going to have their sections. In fact, in verse 9 of Ezekiel chapter 45, and I know we've been going back and forth. We're going to be staying in Ezekiel from now on. Those of you with actual uh, paper Bibles, I know you have to kind of go back and forth, back and forth. But that's okay. It, it's a good exercise to do. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 45, verse 9, it says, For this is what the sovereign Lord says. Enough, you princes of Israel. Stop your violence and oppression and do what is just and right. Quit robbing and cheating my people out of their land. Stop expelling them from their homes, says the sovereign Lord. Use only honest weights and scales and honest measures, both dry and liquid. The homer will be your standard unit for measuring volume. The ephah and the bath will each measure one-tenth of a homer. And the standard units for weight will be a silver shekel. One shekel will consist of 20 geras and 60 shekels will be equal to one uh, mina. I don't know if you've ever gone, gone to the store or, or, or maybe you've tried to measure something. Or when you were kids, you tried to cut a piece of cake perfectly in half. Or maybe a, a cookie perfectly in half. Uh, have you ever had a, a person that tried to make it so that uh, they got the greater portion? I know none of you ever did that. But, of course, what would happen when someone tried to, to cheat you out of your portion? What would you say? I know you all said it. What did, what did you say? It's not fair, right? The, the fairness of the measurement is all important. When you go to the store and measure your food or your weight or your apples or your oranges or whatever it is, or especially at the pump, right? Do you want that gallon to be a real gallon? Oh yeah, it better be. It better be to even the drop, right? Why? Because you want to get what, you're, what you paid for. Unfortunately, during the time of this writing, not only during the time of, of Jeremiah, but all the way even to uh, King Solomon himself, had, had there been unfair people in the land, unfair rulers. In fact, that's why there was a split in the nation of Israel. Remember after King Solomon died, what happened? Rehoboam wanted to literally tax the people to death. He wanted to, as the figurative language was, uh, whip them with scorpions. Make them pay through the nose. And so because of that, there was a split in uh, the land. During this time, there's going to be fair measurements. There's going to be fair payments. There's going to be truth in uh, measurement there's going to be truth in a weighing and volume and all the things that go into the things that we value in fact look here in verse 13 you must give this tax to the prince one bushel of wheat or barley for every 60 you harvest one percent of your olive oil don't you love those kind of taxes wow one percent, that's it. That's all you have to give. Continues on. One sheep or goat for every 200 in your flock in Israel. That's only 0.5%, by the way. Isn't that a great tax? 
Wow. Can you imagine that, where there's not a person ruling in authority that demands an exorbitant amount from you? This is what it's going to be like during the time of the millennial kingdom. There will be grain offerings, burnt offerings, peace offerings. They will make atonement for the people who bring them, says the sovereign Lord. All the people of Israel must join in bringing these offerings to the prince, the prince will be required to provide offerings that are given at the religious festivals, the new moon celebration, the Sabbath days, and all the other offerings and peace offerings to purify the people of Israel, making them right with the Lord. The prince will join the people in worshiping the Lord. He will be counted as one of the people. Now again, not only is this prince a lowercase p, uh, but this prince will be offering sacrifices. So we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is not Jesus Christ, because has Jesus Christ ever sinned? No. This is a, a man. He will be included in uh, not only uh, the burnt offerings, which are considered the, the sin offerings, but also the offerings that go to uh, God himself, verse 18, it continues on. This is what the sovereign Lord says. In early spring, on the first day of each new year, sacrifice a young bull with no defects to purify the temple. This is what was called the red heifer. This is the uh, bull that not only had to be without blemish, there could be nothing wrong with this bull. He couldn't have a single speck that was out of place. He couldn't have a mole on him. He couldn't have a, a broken leg or, or some sort of sore on his body, this bull. But as well as we see here in the rest of this section, it was to sacrifice a young bull with no defects to purify the temple. Every year this had to be done. The temple is going to be purified by this bull. Uh, the priest will take blood from their sin offering and put it on the doorposts of the temple, the four corners of the upper ledge of the altar, and the gateposts at the entrance to the inner courtyard. Do this also on the seventh day of the new year for anyone who has sinned through error or ignorance. In this way, you will purify the temple. And then on the 14th day of the first month, you must celebrate the Passover. Do you know why they're celebrating the Passover? Do, do you know why they're doing these uh, celebrations? Not only continuing what was done in uh, the Old Testament, but, but even today, we're going to be taking communion later on. Why, why do we take communion? You guys know the answer. Are, are we re-sacrificing Jesus? Are, are we somehow, you know, mystically transforming these elements into Christ in our body? No, we know that's not true. But we do it in remembrance of what he did for us, right? It's to remember that he died for us. It's to remember what he did on the cross for us. It's to look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we get to actually celebrate with Jesus together. But we're not actually re-sacrificing Jesus, are we? It's the same thing with these uh, sacrifice here. It's the same thing with these celebrations during this 1,000 a year uh, reign. These are remembrances of what Jesus Christ did for us. The lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Verse 13, or excuse me, uh, verse 11, it says, so at the special feasts and sacred festivals, the grain offering will be a basket of choice flour with each young bull, another basket of flour with each ram, as much flour as the worshiper gives to give with each lamb. Give one gallon of olive oil with each basket of flour. And when the prince offers a voluntary 
burnt offering or peace offering to the Lord. The east gateway to the inner courtyard will be opened for him. And he will offer his sacrifices as he does on Sabbath days. And then he will leave and the gateway will be shut uh, behind him. And you remember uh, from last week, there's the eastern gateway. Uh, this gateway even today is, is sealed uh, but during the millennial kingdom, it'll only be open uh, on uh, the Sabbath day. Each morning, you must sacrifice a one-year-old lamb with no defects as a burnt offering to the Lord. And with the lamb, a grain offering must also be given to the Lord. About three quarts of flour with a third of a gallon of olive oil to moisten the choice flour. This will be a permanent law for you. The lamb... The grain offering and the olive oil must be given as a daily sacrifice every morning without uh, fail. This isn't every single person. This is for the temple itself. Do you know how the priests are paid? With this. Do you know how the priests eat? With this. In fact, as we're going to see in just a little bit, that the people that are living during this time, this is how they fellowship. This is their potluck before the Lord, if you will. That they would take their, their offerings and, and part of it would be burned and part of it would be eaten as uh, the person that is sacrificing it. I, I don't know if you've ever been to a, a potluck before. I'm sure all of you had. You, I mean, you go to Calvary Chapel. Uh, but, but, you know, what do, we, what do we do when we have a potluck? Or at least most people do. Uh, what, what are we, you asked to do? Yeah, bring something, right? It's your, your portion, if you will. And then everybody shares of that. It's exactly the same way uh, with these uh, sacrifices. Verse 16, it continues on, and this is what the Sovereign Lord says. If the prince gives a gift of land to one of his sons as an inheritance, it will belong to him and his descendants forever. But if the prince gives a gift of land from his inheritance to one of his servants, the servants may keep it only until the year of Jubilee, which comes every 50th year. And at that time, the land will return to the prince. But when the prince gives gifts to his sons, those gifts will be permanent. Of course, this makes sense. You understand it. It stays within the lineage. It stays within uh, uh, the inheritance of uh, the prince. Uh, the prince may never take anyone's property by force. If he gives property to his sons, it must be from his own land for I do not want any of my people unjustly evicted uh, from their uh, property. Is God a just God? And does he require the people that serve him to be just as uh, well? Yes, thank God for that. Verse 19. And in my vision, the man brought me through the entrance beside the gateway. Led me to the sacred rooms assigned to the priests, which faced toward the north. He showed me a place at the extreme west end of these rooms. He explained, this is where the priests will cook the meat from the guilt offerings and the sin offerings and bake the flour from the grain offerings into the bread. And they, they will do it here to avoid carrying the sacrifices through the outer courtyard and endangering the people by transmitting holiness uh, to them, there's going to be a certain section in the middle that's just for those sacrifices that are holy to the Lord. But then, verse 21, this is where included the people. And he brought me back to the outer courtyard and led me to each of the four corners. And each corner I saw an enclosure. Each of these enclosures was 70 feet long, 52 feet wide, surrounded by walls. And along the inside of these walls was a ledge of stone with fireplaces under the ledge all the way around. And the man said to me, these are the kitchens to be used by the temple assistants to boil the sacrifices offered by uh, the people. This is those sacrifices that are brought by uh, the people living during this time that will be able to have their sacrifices cooked and then to be able to worship uh, the Lord during this time. 
You see, this magnificent temple isn't just for worship, it's for fellowship as well. This is why it's so big. This is why it is so uh, massive. People literally from all over the world will come to this temple. Worship the Lord and fellowship with the Lord. Chapter 47. By the way, the numbers haven't ended yet. You guys remember the two different numbering systems, right? There was a cubit which was the middle finger all the way down to the elbow. This is approximately a, a foot and a half, okay? So whenever you're reading like the King James Version or New King James Version or a, a version with cubits, you just have to multiply it by 150, okay? Uh, but then there's, there was the rod as well, and this was the, the fixed measurement. This rod was six cubits long, okay? The, 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 this rod was six royal cubits uh, long, okay? This is what we're going to be seeing in this next section in chapter 47. This rod is used for long amounts of measurements. And in my vision, the man brought me back to the entrance of the temple. There I saw a stream flowing east from beneath the door of the temple. Passing to the right of the altar on its south side. The man brought me outside the wall through the north gateway. And he led me around to the eastern entrance. And there I could see the water flowing out through the south side of the east gate. Measuring as I went, he, he took me along the stream for 1,750 feet. And then, then led me across... The water was up to my ankles. This is a thousand cubits. So every, every single one of these measurements is a thousand uh, cubits. Every thousand feet, or excuse me, every thousand cubits, uh, Ezekiel is going to measure the water that's coming out of the temple. What is the first measurement? It came up to his ankles. Okay? Just a couple of inches. He measured off another 1,750 feet, and he led me across again, and this time the water was up to my knees. Uh, another 1,000 cubits. Uh, 1,000 cubits is approximately like a, a third of a mile. He went up to his knees, and after another 1,750 feet, it was up to my waist. And then he measured another 1,750 feet, and the river was too deep to walk across. It was deep enough to swim in, but too deep uh, to walk through. And I'm sure it depends upon how tall you are. Uh, but, but you understand what is happening here. After approximately a mile and one-third, the river that is coming out of the temple, that is just a trickle at the entrance, is getting bigger and bigger and deeper and deeper and so on and so forth until it becomes a river coming out of the temple. Where is the origin of this river? The very temple of God, living waters. You guys have all heard that phrase before. This isn't just literal, uh, or excuse me, this isn't just figurative. This is literal. Uh, what, what is coming out of the temple itself, living uh, water, what is that living water going to be able to do? Verse 6. He asked me, have you been watching, son of man? Then he led me back along the riverbank, and when I returned, I was surprised by the sight of many trees growing on both sides of the river. And he said to me, this river flows east through the desert into the valley of the Dead Sea. If you go to Israel today, there's a section in the southern portion of Israel called the Dead Sea. This is a region that has been dead literally from the beginning. That this is the region of Israel where it is very, very mineral rich, but anything that tries to live in this area literally dies because of the amount of salt that is in the sea. 
In fact, so much so that not only the sea itself is dead, but much of the land around the sea is also dead. What will happen when this river comes to the Dead Sea? Just like when the Holy Spirit comes into our life, just like when the river of life that comes not only from God himself, from the temple of God himself into our life, what will happen to the Dead Sea? Look at the description here. The Bible tells it so much better than I ever could. It says, the waters of this stream will make the salty waters of the Dead Sea fresh and pure. Wow. What is the power of the living waters of God? You guys remember when Jesus was sitting there beside the well. And that woman came out, right? The woman of Samaria. He knew every single thing about her, right? He knew all of her sins. He said, where, where, where is your husband? Right? Knowing that she had multiple husbands before. Divorced them all. And the guy that he's, she's living with now wasn't even her husband, right? And what did he say? Not only the fact that this lady was physically thirsty, but spiritually thirsty as well. If you knew who was sitting beside you, if you knew who was right in your presence, you would ask me for water. And what kind of water does Jesus Christ give? Living uh, water. <coughs> It says there in verse 9, again, describing it in much better ways than I ever could. There will be swarms of living things wherever the water of this river flows. Fish will abound in the Dead Sea. By, by the way, this is an oxymoron. I mean, obviously nothing can live in a Dead Sea, right? By definition, it is dead, right? But can you imagine this river that flows into the Dead Sea and the Dead Sea now becomes alive? So much so that there's actually fish in the Dead Sea. What else? Life will flourish wherever this water flows. I don't know if you guys are fishermen or not. <clears throat> But can you imagine fishing from the mountains surrounding the Dead Sea, the hills surrounding the Dead Sea, fishing for fish that are now alive? This is how it describes it there in verse 10. <clears throat> Fishermen will stand along the shores of the Dead Sea all the way from Engedi in, in Egalim. The shores will be covered with nets drying in the sun. Fish of every kind will fill the Dead Sea just as they fill the Mediterranean. Wow. Do you guys know where Engedi is at? <clears throat> this is the place where David uh, ran from King Saul. This was the place where he wrote, you know, beautiful psalms about, you know, um, you know, as the deer thirsts for the water. So I, I thirst for the living God, right? These were the places that were the oases up in the hills surrounding the Dead Sea area. Can you imagine being able to fish from those places? Now, of course, it describes nets, but I'm sure there's going to be, you know, fishing rods as well. You know, but can you imagine being able to fish from the area that was once dead that is now alive? This is the power of God. This is the power of the living water. This is the power of changing something that was once dead into something that is now alive. Does he do it even in greater miracles with people as well? Every single one of you that know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, did he change something that was dead into something that is alive? You are a new what? A new creation. By, by the way, this is what we're going to be celebrating tonight. You don't have to be a member of this church. We don't even have membership. You just have to know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Otherwise, it's meaningless. Absolutely meaningless.
It's just a, a wafer and, a, and some juice. That's it. But, but if you know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, he's, he's converted you, he's changed you, he's made you a new creation. This is something that you remember what Jesus Christ did for you. It says there in verse 11, but the marshes and the swamps will not be purified. They will still stay salting. Of this, of course, is for the minerals that are around that area. Also, verse 12 Fruit trees of all kinds will grow along both sides of the river. The leaves of these trees will never turn brown or fall. Wow. <clears throat> my, my, my wife always rakes up the leaves. And when my sons were, were younger, they, they were the ones that raked up the leaves. And, and I hear it all the time, right? You know, maybe you complain about the leaves on the ground, right? But can you imagine trees that don't drop their leaves? Why? It tells us there. <clears throat> there will always be fruit on their branches. Wouldn't you love to have a tree like that? There will be a new crop every single month. Wow. For they are watered by the river flowing from the temple. The fruit will be for food and the leaves for... Wow. This isn't even heaven, by the way. Where there's going to be a tree, and you guys know in the book of Revelation, there's going to be a tree there that has a different fruit every single month. And, and the leaves also will be used for healing as well. If you go to Israel today, there's date trees, there's pomegranate trees, there are all kinds of trees. They have huge agriculture, but this puts that to shame, by the way. What is the power of the living water? It makes things dead into life. Next week, we'll pick up the rest of this. I hope you come. We'll just a chapter and a half left. But I, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 26. And this is our tradition here. On the first Wednesday of the month, the first Sunday of the month, we, we celebrate communion. The Bible doesn't tell us how often we have to have communion. But we do it just to remember what God has done for us. Whenever we do it, we remember him. And as I ask the guys to, to come up, Ask the worship team to come up. I just want to read to you these sections. We're going to take this, uh, what we call uh, as a congregation, we're going to take it together. And so as the elements are handed to you, just hold them in your hand. Just hold them in your hand and, and uh, remember what Christ did for you. It says there in Matthew 26, 26. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread, blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples. So as you hold these elements in your hand, the men are going to be passing it around to you. As you worship the Lord on this last song. Just remember what Jesus Christ did for you. His broken body. His blood shed for you hold it in your hands and 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 just to remember what god has done for you and after this song we'll we'll take it together Take me past the outer courts Into the holy place Past the brazen altar Lord, I want to see your face Pass me by the crowds of people The priests who sing your praise I hunger and thirst for your righteousness but it's only found one place Take me into the holies of holies Take me in by the blood 
of the Lamb. Take me hand to the Holy of Holies. Take the coal, touch my lips, here I am. Take me past the outer courts to the holy place, past the brazen altar. Lord, I want to see your face. Pass me by the crowds of people, the priests who sing your praise. I hunger and thirst for your righteousness, but it's only found one place. Take me hand to the holy holies. Take me in by the blood of the Lamb. Take me hand to the holy holies. Take the coal, touch my lips, here I am. Take me hand to the holy, holies. Take me in by the blood of the Lamb. Take me in to the holy, holies. Take the coal, touch my lips, here I am. Take the coal. Touch my lips, here I am. Take the cold, touch my lips, here I am. I, I hope as you're holding this, not only maybe remembering when you uh, first knew about the Lord, maybe when you made that commitment to Him, maybe the first time you had communion, I don't know. But the privilege that we have tonight is remembering what um, Jesus Christ did for you. You see, it was there on the, the what we call the Last Supper. When Jesus took the same bread and he blessed it. He broke it in pieces and he gave it to his disciples saying, Take this. Eat it. For this is my body. And so the privilege as we take it together is remember what Jesus Christ did for us. He continues on there and he said he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it. For this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. We remember what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We remember his shed blood for us, the blood that cleanses us, not just covers, but cleanses us of our uh, sins. He gives us his righteousness and he takes our uh, sins, that unfair exchange between us and God. But the next verse clearly says, and I love this, not only looking back on what Jesus Christ did for you and me, but in verse 29, mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day, excuse me, the day I drink it new with you. In my Father's kingdom, do we get to share and with better uh, juice, better drink, uh, better bread, better taste buds in heaven itself? There at the wedding feast of the Lamb where you get to enjoy fellowship with Jesus Christ. So as you drink it tonight, remember, look forward to the time that you have with Jesus Christ.
then as our tradition, as we do on Wednesday nights, it doesn't end there, and you guys know this. That very last verse there. It didn't end in the upper room, did it? What did they do? And they sang a hymn. And they went out to the Mount of Olives. As they're walking to the Mount of Olives, going through that same valley that Jesus Christ, it literally is going to split down the middle when he comes again, singing a hymn. So please stand as we sing this hymn tonight. I'm going to just read the third verse here. It says, O come, thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, the death's dark shadows put to flight. Do you need a new life? Do you need to have the dark shadows put to flight? Who's the only one that can take that away? Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Please sing this song with me. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here. Until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. Shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free. Thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save. And give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. Shall come to thee, O Israel. Um, by, by the way, do you know what Emmanuel means? You know this. God with us. It says there in the verse, third verse. O come thou day spring, come and cheer. Our spirits find thy advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O his. Rael, O come thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. And so as we praise you tonight, Lord, we ask that you would, as we even just remember the taste in our mouth, maybe as we leave this room tonight, that that we would remember what you did. This, this living water that comes literally from you yourself, from the, the temple itself, coming to bring dead things back to life. Remembering what you did for us, dying so that we might live. Giving us newness of life, a, a new creation 
your Holy Spirit living uh, within us, making us alive. So Lord, I ask you bless these my friends and my family tonight. That we would not leave this place the same way we came in. That we would be changed. Not, not by a, a person's words, but by your living word. But by your truth that comes from a, a Bible, a scriptures that are alive and active. That transform people's lives. So Father, use us for your glory. Help us to remember these words. You are coming again. And we anxiously await that time. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless.